1744, the first golf club with a definite proof of origin was the Company of Gentlemen Golfers Who Played of Leith, now called the Honourable Company of Edinburgh Golfers Who Play at Muirfield. It was that year when several gentlemen of honour, skillful in the ancient and healthful exercise of the golf, petitioned the Edinburgh City Council to donate a silver club for their annual competition on the Leith Links. The winner of the competition was declared captain of the golf for the year, and a silver ball with the date and the captain's name inscribed upon it was attached to the silver club. Thank you for listening to the Silver Club podcast. Here's your host, two-time Walker Cupper and former world amateur number one Steve Scott, and men's golf coach at Yale University and golf historian Colin Sheehan. Okay, Colin, it is amazing to be back with you once again for the Silver Club podcast today. We've got an awesome podcast lined up. Chris Kallmeyer and Pete Trenum from the Philadelphia area. Chris is really the, the steward of uh, the East Falls Open, the oldest living amateur neighborhood golf tournament in Philadelphia. It's, this is celebrating its 100th year this year. Pete Trenum was a 29-year head pro, St. David's Golf Club in Philadelphia. He's, he's a huge historian of golf in the Philadelphia area. So all the Silver Club podcast listeners stick around for that. Going to be a lot of fun. But uh, but Colin, let's uh, let's let's chat about kind of on the topic of of golf tournaments. Uh, we've got a few cool events. Uh, you know, some of the best national golfing events, really, in the amateur circuit right now. Very cool. Um, I had uh, my player James Nicholas had a podium finish at the Sunny Hanna Amateur. Uh, this past weekend, third place in a massive field of uh, over over 100 golf clubs, over 100 participants of an elite field, a Wagger, an A tournament. Um, uh, you have good. to love these old these old fashioned tournaments. I'd love to hear your experience in it, where you where it is talk about community event run by the club, everyone put up locally and member and volunteer housing. That, that those were that was a major era of of amateur golf, and I love seeing it alive and well. What was your uh, also about your Sunny Hannock experience? Yeah, I played in uh, back in the mid to late nineties. I played in four Sunny Hannock amateurs in nineteen ninety six. I was uh, finished runner up in there. I shot sixty eight in the final round, kind of a, a backdoor runner up, if you will. But uh, um, it was uh, Sunny Hannock. It's it's right near Pittsburgh. It's in Johnstown, Pennsylvania. Uh, maybe the city's maybe most famous for a massive flood that happened back 80, 90 years ago. And, uh, and uh, the whole town, the whole community, the whole membership gets really behind uh, the Sunny Hannah Amateur. And you stay in members' houses. And it's really an intimate feel. And over time, they've garnered some of the greatest amateurs have ever gone through uh, Sunny Hannah Country Club there and. <laughs> but that is the those tournaments. That is that is such a beautiful aspect of the amateur game, where these kids traveling don't have unlimited funds. This and you know they're able to they're able to attend this tournament on the cheap and stay in housing. And it's the good graces of these, these host families that do it year after year. And and where they really like it, it's such a major event in these towns. And the Porter Cup is the same thing. And. I had another player, Teddy Zinsner, was up in Rochester this past weekend for the Monroe Invitational, another event that goes back nearly, um, you know, 80, 90 years. And uh, and then today, a couple of them are playing. There's a beautiful one-day Invitational at, at Quaker Ridge, the the Hawkster. That's a fun, a beautiful uh, Mets section kind of 
Invitational. Yeah, I know they play 36 holes there today. Yeah, I played in it a few years ago, and the, the guy who won, he he got he got up to give his uh, sort of acceptance speech, and he said, he, "I guess I'm going to have to tell my wife I played golf today." <laughs> nice. Uh, yeah, you know, right? real, yeah. Sort of, real real sort of uh, mid amateur kind of event with some college kids mixed in, but and then and then uh, yeah, and then after this, uh, for the first time in a while, I'm having a, a player. James is is going to go to Juana Moist. Northeast Amateur, another sort of major invitation on the calendar. What was your experience in that event? The Northeast Am, yeah, up at Wanamoisit in, uh, in uh, just outside of Providence, Rhode Island. Yeah, it's a par 69, maybe the coolest, uh, one of the few par 69s really out there that's such a, a championship layout. It's kind of like the the masters of of amateur events, if you will. It's just, it's such a special, it, you know, all the greatest players have come through there. Players like, you know, Mickelson and Tiger and Crenshaw and, you know, you name it, every generation uh, they've had, they've had players come through there. But uh, yeah, the Northeast Dam, uh, that one, that one, basically the summer of 1996 was kind of, I'll, I'll just say I had the runner up slam that year. I was runner <laughs> up in the Sunny Hannah. I was runner up in the Northeast. That one I totally blew. I was runner up in the Dixie Amateur, and <laughs> I was most famously runner up in the United States Amateur to one Tiger Woods, and uh, so I was really close. But you know the, that one, obviously, you know uh, the, the Northeast Am. I had that in the bag. I had I ended up bogeying my last four holes to lose by a shot. And Jason Enlow, the current SMU men's college golf coach ended up uh, beating me by a shot. He eagled the 14th hole and made another birdie coming in. And I totally threw up all over myself. And, uh, you know, after that and after the tiger match, you know, years of therapy, millions of dollars spent on, uh, (laughs) on that, (laughs) on getting past those, uh, those downfalls, I guess, if you will. But uh, no, it it was, it was a great summer. Uh, But yeah, these, these local, yeah, tell me what's it like. What's it like for the player? You must love after playing sort of for college. You see the kids all. You see these guys all year as college teams, and then you're you're at these sort of community events. Like, what's 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 it like for the players at these events? Well, I I, I think it's such a more relaxed atmosphere than a than a college event, only because you're not in a situation where you're worrying about school. I, I always played better in the summer because I didn't have school as a burden. You know that I had to go back for a test or you know to you know, there, there really was no other focus other than playing tournament golf. And, you know, you know, just kind of was fortunate enough to jump around from one one tournament to another and be able to participate and play with the, the best, you know, the best amateurs in the uh, in the entire country. But the uh, these amateur events, yeah, they're, they're very special. And, you know, your time goes by very quickly because most of the most of the participants uh, they're college players. And so between the ages of 18 and 22, and you have that little window of time where you, you feel like it's never going to end. And you, you, you just want to kind of, you look back now, me being almost 42, you look back and you, and you, you really appreciate those, that, that little four year window where you got to, got to play those events. Uh, you know, I end up staying with the head pro there at Juana Moisit, uh, every year. His name is Steve Napoli. Uh, He's uh, he's still in in the business, not the head pro there anymore at Wanamoisit, but uh, I know he's that- actually uh, he's actually coaching 
uh, college, uh, college of the Holy Cross. Bingo. Exactly. Yeah. So that's really cool. And uh, now, yeah, yeah that type of that type of that is that is that is a really beautiful aspect where the members of the club come out of the, go out of their way and they roll out the red carpet and the the court they the courts is in a week they hand over their courts for a week for these events. I have a lot of respect for those clubs. You know, I you ask you ask a club and a course like what did you do for amateur golf this year did you make yourself available and and that type of that type of gesture is, is such a sort of awesome contribution to amateur golf Co- competition wise on the whole competition front uh we'd be remiss if we didn't chat uh briefly about the u.s open that just finished yesterday at pebble beach uh what, what's what's your take on how it all played out and 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 how the USGA kind of uh, they let the golf course and the players shine really uh, in, in this event they were kind of they were out of the hi- out of the highlights or the limelight of the uh, of all the the you know the goings on there at Pebble Beach. A bunch of things. First, we'll just uh, a little tip of the cap to Jack Nicholas. How about a U.S. Open amateur scoring record that stood for 59 years? Holy smokes. And actually, I'm not sure it was, it's, I'm not sure if it's, if it's in relation to par, I don't know what Cherry Hills was in 1960, but um, any record that stands that long is, um, is incredible. So congrats to Victor Hovland. Uh, and and great exposure for the for the amateurs making the cut and a shout out even though he got roughed up on the weekend uh, the the junior am champion the the Stanford commit is yeah pretty, Michael Michael Thorbjornson what a showing make make it through the thirty six holes as a that young is incredible and and and, and you got to give the USJ some kudos there for for the first time ever offering a spot in the U.S. Open Championship to the U.S. Junior Amateur Champion from the year before. He won at, at Baltusrol in 2018, and uh, they, they offered a spot to that winner of, of that Junior Amateur. They're, they know and understand the, the value of, of the youth movement in golf, and, and so kudos to the USGA for that. They've, you know, they're, they're trying to do all the right things right now, and... Um, you know, I think I'll, the, I'll what, I think the, the US Steve, Open goes a long way in, into into do into giving them a, a you know getting their name you know <laughs> better as as far as the general public goes. So I I, I spent um, the weekend I had sort of about sixteen junior golfers in town for a for my annual sort of three day camp. And on Friday, what's what was interesting is that probably more than any other player, maybe after sort of like Tiger and. Kepka or something, the player that they were most um, consciously tracking and discussing when we were looking at, when they were out on the court practicing and playing was the junior, junior amateur. To them, that was like, they are looking at their peer. It's really interesting. And that was a very smart move. It was a very smart move to include it. And he validated the, uh, he justified the exemption by uh, making the cut. By making the cut, exactly. That's uh, and then so I, I have to admit, I as the historian in me was pulling for Brooks Kepka, um, the idea that we may not see a three, you know, it, like a Maggio fifty-six game hitting streak. The idea of a three-peat in the U.S. Open is already over a century and going. And and when he jumped out early, I can't, believe, you know, I can't believe I'm going to say this about his round. 
he, after putting four of the first five with that part, the second being almost the most miraculous of those early holes, he, he should have birdied six and seven. He should have been six under after seven holes. Unbelievable. Uh, what, a, unbelievable. What, a, what a start. I mean, he, he's really unfazed by any of the moment at all, it seems like. And uh, if you could just bottle what he has right now, you could sell it for an uh, infinite amount of, amount of money, couldn't you? Yeah, and then, you know, an extraordinary tip of the cap to Gary Woodland. I had a lot of fun watching it last night with my with my with my father and uh and my daughters. And uh I have to, the three wood into fourteen was incredible. Clutch. The tight lie chip on seventeen. That was outrageous. Oh, so I don't I, I was so impressed. And then the smart the way he I, I was as the coach in me was smiling ear to ear the way he was playing the 18th hole and then to have the sort of three putts for the win was was I'm, you I love seeing players who have who have traveled distance to get to where they are I mean a division two basketball player a transfer a, 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 a not golf powerhouse school a guy who trended in this direction forever who sought to improve himself to be more dimensional than a that sort of just a long hitter, someone who has found him found himself couldn't be more happy and thrilled for, for Gary Woodland and the and the sort of the, the the path he took to get to where he is. He's he completely deserved it. How, how many amateurs talking about his his chip on the from the seventeenth green on that hourglass <laughs> green there, Pebble? How many players in this whole world would have just gotten up there? And totally boned that chip over the green. I mean, how yeah. hard that shot! He made that shot look so easy. I will. I wouldn't even have used loft. I just would have shoved it up in the fringe there and finished fifteen feet and made bogey. But you know, you're right. He did it. He didn't. I admired. Like kept. There's a little bit of. I wonder if he's emulating him. How how sort of unfazed he looked when things went well or otherwise. I. He didn't seem to be at all rattled by anything down the stretch. Um, the uh, I, I wouldn't hit that shot. <laughs> that was like hitting it off wood boards at that point. No, for sure. And, and, and it's a great story, really, when it comes down to it, because Gary Woodland had uh, he had some personal, some family issues, some family troubles. Uh, his wife, a couple of years ago, was pregnant with twins. They end up losing one of the one of the the uh, embryos. Uh, mis- she miscarried, uh, ended up giving birth to the other, and he's he's healthy. He's about two years old now, and a uh, great story to top that all off, to tie it into the whole Father's Day scenario in August. Uh, he'll, he's got twins on the way again. So Exactly. Twin girls, how wonderful is 2019 for Gary Woodland? Yeah, I don't think, I don't think anybody could. Uh, better. I don't know if he could, he could top, top this. Uh, that's, Steve, that's, tell me your tell me your U.S. Open experience. Yeah, no, back in 1996, the U.S. Open was spectacular. I was kind of like that Michael Thorbjornson. I was 18 years old. I qualified uh, for the uh, U.S. Open at Oakland Hills that year. I hold a 30-footer on the final hole of qualifying at Bay Hill to make it on the number. They took seven players that year from Bay Hill. And I was the seventh spot. I shot three under par for, for 36 holes there. And I'll never forget that moment as long as I live. And then, and awesome. then I, lo and behold, I get to Oakland Hills. And I ended up holding a 30-footer on my very first hole of the championship on Thursday morning. We teed off at about 730. 
And, and I, I carried that one under par through the 11th hole. I was tied for the lead as an 18-year-old in the U.S. Open through 11 holes. And my name was on the board. I was paired with Bob Ford, the legendary professional from a uh, long time at Oakmont, now just at Seminole Golf Club. Really? And uh, so I got to know Bob through that. And it was, a, it was just a, a special time. Bob and I have actually both made the cut that year. And uh, I shot 71-73, was tied for 45th place going into the weekend, ended up getting paired with Ian Woosnam in the third round. Uh, my girlfriend, Christy, now my wife, uh, for almost 20 years now, she was caddying for me at the time. And uh, I believe it was her first major championship experience caddying. And uh, I think she stepped in she stepped in Woosnam's through line a few times, and I don't think he or his caddy were too happy about that. But uh, uh, nonetheless, it was a, an amazing experience. Got to have, uh, you know, give my father a, a pretty cool Father's Day present. Uh, he was there, and we, uh, we, we shared a – it was just a, a special time. You know, making the cut as an 18-year-old just kind of kind of blows your mind, really, to think, to think of how, you know, how the game was at that young of an age. Nice. And how about the following year? Uh, the following year did not play in the U.S. Open. The following year, they 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 uh, only recently really have they given uh, both of the finalists an invite into the U.S. Open as well as the Masters. So uh, you know, I hate to say it, but I only got to play in the Masters in 1997 and not the U.S. Open. But still, pretty good uh, consolation. That's pretty cool. You, you remember who you played with in the final round? I played with, uh, you know, I'm not exactly sure. I want to say it was a club pro named Sean Kelly or something like that. We teed off. I was so far down the list. I shot a poor round on on Saturday of Woosnam. I think I shot about 81. And I was in about 100th and something place. There were so many people made the cut. And we teed off about 645 on Sunday morning. I was done before breakfast. It was like, uh, right. it, it was it was pretty early, but... Uh, just uh, a time I'll never forget. Yeah. By the way, I'm very excited. On Friday, I'm driving down. I can't wait. After 18 months, uh, Marion East is is finally reopening and uh, bringing my broken down game to the member member on on Friday. Excited to see Gil Hanta's uh, restoration of the of the East course. It should be pretty exciting. Oh boy, that that is a. Uh... That's a good nugget. Is there a member guest that we could play in at some point? Like, <laughs> I'll, I'll bring you in. I'll nice. I can't in. wait to go back. I played Marion one time, and those greens were a lot like Pebble Beach as far as the size of them go. And, uh, yeah, that, that should be uh, an amazing view, uh, a new restoration. What, what's, what's really the, what are really the, the nuggets of what they put together in this restoration? Uh, it was pretty comprehensive, over $10 million. They buried the irrigation pond, like an Olympic-sized pool, but uh, dug up all the greens, um, so installed sort of a vision of sub-air, um, massive drainage, rebuilt all the bunkers to look like the original sort of 140 white faces of Marion under the Fazio sort of redo in the early 2000s. They got the brows became too heavy, and then they were sort of growing too much fescue on them, and... Um, I think they're going to be there's going to be a lot more of that sort of flash to them, and uh, and then of course so there'll be greens that can with, withstand the sort of summertime heat on the main line and all with an eye towards the uh, the upcoming U.S. Amateur there. And then I'm I'm the sort of it hasn't been announced, but there's sort of this, um, 
everyone's operating under the assumption of the 2030 U.S. Open coming back to Marion in honor of the Grand Slam, even though Jones won the amateur at Marion in 1930. Yeah, yeah. They, but they, uh, they did a little something to that 11th green as well. They've had um, that famous well, they, 11th green where he won the where he won the Grand Slam. Well, the, the the only green that's in a new location is the the par five second. They moved it about thirty yards back as far and um, and there there probably were a few places where in in the past I think re- relatively recently they've had to sort of undo a little bit of of grade to get some simple locations on the twelfth green and the and the uh, the fifteenth hole. But that but that green on eleven specifically though I, I I believe I heard they raised the green about four feet to kind of counteract any potential flooding that happens in that area with with heavy rains right i should know i I, yeah i I bet that's probably a good sort of uh a good hedge against uh, against the next hundred years of of uh you know inclement weather oh well look that's uh that's some good philadelphia golf stories and we've got another great philadelphia golf story we're going to get to chris kallmeyer and pete trenum from the east falls open in just a moment Okay, Colin, but before we get to our guest this week on our podcast, we couldn't do this podcast without the help of the Silver Club Golfing Society. Our society is growing every day, and as the proud founder of the Silver Club Golfing Society, I'm talking with great people all the time and extolling the virtues of our society. We've got some great venues coming up this year. We're playing at places like Quaker Ridge, Pasa Tiempo, and we've got the Inverness Club coming up on June 24th, so you're not going to want to miss out on that. We've got some great partners as well in the Dunhill brand, Club Champion, Blast Motion, Torch Eyewear, Lynx and Kings, and Turtleson. A special shout out to the Dunhill brand. In 2020, they are putting up a raffle. For those who play in an event this year, your name will go into a raffle to have a chance to win a trip of a lifetime over to Scotland in 2020 to the Dunhill Lynx Championship. So you're not going to want to miss out on that. If you want to play some of the country's best courses and hit shots that matter in competition, then the Silver Club Golfing Society is where you need to be. Check out our website at silverclubgolfingsociety.com and check us out on social media at Silver Club Golf on Instagram and Twitter. And we're also on Facebook as well under Silver Club Golfing Society. Okay, let's get to this week's guest, Chris Kallmeyer and Pete Trenum. And let's talk about the oldest living neighborhood golf tournament in the country, celebrating the 100th anniversary this year, the East Falls Open. Okay, all you Silver Club podcast listeners, today we have two people that are connected with the game of golf in Philadelphia. You know, in the world of golf, there's a huge focus placed on national competitive events like the U.S. Open or the U.S. Amateur. And these events every year gain national acclaim for their venues and their champions. This year actually serves as the 119th playing of these national championships at iconic venues such as Pebble Beach and Pinehurst. This year, there will also be another historic tournament that will take place on the east banks of the Schuylkill River in the golf-rich town of Philadelphia. This event is called the East Falls Open, and this year will mark its 100th playing of this event that started back in 1920 and has major ties to the origin of the competitive game in all of America. This event always falls on the first Monday after Labor Day. This year's event will be on September 9th. 
We're sitting here today at the Philadelphia Cricket Club, and we're sitting on the back porch looking out and in this golf-rich area of Philadelphia. We're lucky enough today to be joined by two people who know just a little bit about the game of golf in Philadelphia, in Chris Kallmeyer and Pete Trenum. Chris is a multiple champion of the East Falls Open and a proud member of the Philadelphia Cricket Club, as well as the steward of the East Falls Golf Association. And Pete Trenum, 29-year head professional at St. David, retired there in 1994 and is a past president of the Philadelphia PGA. Gentlemen, welcome to the Silver Club Podcast. Great to be here. Great to be here, Steve. Thank you. Nice to be here. The game of golf in Philadelphia really has some strong history. The sense of place that Philadelphia sits in the game of golf Chris, talk about you growing up in East Falls and give our listeners a sense of what the East Falls area is like and what it originally meant to the game of golf. Absolutely. Thanks, Steve. So to get a sense of place for East Falls, it's important to think of the city of Philadelphia. And like many cities uh, all over the country, all over the world, it's composed of neighborhoods. In Philadelphia, there's nearly 200 neighborhoods, and one of those neighborhoods is East Falls. It accounts for less than 1% of the population of Philadelphia, just to give a sense of the size of the neighborhood. And it sits on the east bank of the Schuylkill River on a hill. It runs up about six or eight blocks with, uh, you know, three or four blocks wide. It's very much a middle-class neighborhood, row homes, which Philadelphia is known for. Great place to grow up. And uh, at the top of that hill, just to put this into the context of history, at the top of that hill... It's known in historical context as the, the location of George Washington's encampment multiple times during the Revolutionary War as they passed through the Philadelphia area uh, on one occasion on their way to the Battle of Brandywine. It's also not too far, just about a mile away from the Battle of Germantown, which happened just a little time later in 1777. So there's a real sense of history. Um, in, in the 1770s, 1780s, the population of Philadelphia was about 30,000 people. By 1840, 1850, the population had grown to 100,000. And thanks to the Industrial Revolution and the, the, the emergence of all kinds of industry here in the Philadelphia area, the population by 1890 or so had grown to a million people. So, so in that area, though, you have a couple golf clubs that really formed and were created from, you know, in that early 1890s. We think... When we think of golf, we think of the five founding clubs of golf. We think of Shinnecock and Chicago Golf and St. Andrew's Golf Club off the Hudson River in New York. But Philadelphia maybe gets lost a little bit of that. Maybe Pete can, can talk a little bit about the, the, the few clubs that, that really were the, the, the start of a lot of people's, and, and caddies for that matter, a lot of people's dreams in the game of golf and how they started here at, at these few clubs. And which were they? Well, golf began in Philadelphia. Uh, it had a false start in 1891. Uh, the Philadelphia Country Club, uh, somebody had seen golf somewhere, so they, they built three holes at the Philadelphia Country Club, but it was a, a perfect triangle. It wasn't, wasn't very interesting, and they had some pecans out there for holes, and uh, so it was a big failure but in 1893 some men from philadelphia were up in maine on a vacation and uh they saw people playing golf and uh it was they saw how excited these people were about playing golf and they cut their vacation short and they came back to philadelphia and uh some of them started a course in devon 
which is uh, on the western suburbs of Philadelphia. And some of them started a course at Philadelphia Country Club. And the, the first course it got started was at Devon. And uh, the Philadelphia Country Club, because they hired a professional to help them, that got finished first. But the Devon course got started first. And Devon, the guys at Devon knew so little about golf, they had a guy on a polo pony hitting polo balls trying to figure out how long the holes ought to be. So, but that, that was the beginning. And uh, so 1893, Philadelphia Country Club had a course. It just happened, Philadelphia Country Club, just across the river, the Schuylkill River from East Falls. And now they had golf, and now they, had, they needed caddies. And there were boys, young boys at East Falls that started coming over to the country club and, and learning the game of golf by caddying there. I think the biggest thing that, that is you, you think of caddy programs and how they are so influential in the upbringing and the, the creation of – of junior golfers and you know the amateur game and then people who become professionals in the game and and I think that's the thing that you know we we were able to fortunately spend some time today with both of you on the golf course we played the Philadelphia Cricket Club and you know one of the largest caddy programs in the Philadelphia area and you just think of all the 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 clubs around the country where caddy programs have gone by the wayside because of the needed revenue for carts and you know, unfortunately the bottom line to to clubs and i think it's it's been a, a detriment to the game over time would you maybe agree with that absolutely uh, i've always said it'd be a dark day when we didn't have any caddies but uh it's been, it's been a wonderful experience for many young boys to not only get jobs in golf but get other kind of jobs because of the people they meet I think that really brings it back to the roots of the event as well, Steve. So, you know, in 1890s, you know, early 1900s, these young kids, 8, 10, 12, 14-year-old kids were walking across the bridge of the Schuylkill River, walking up the hill to the Philadelphia Country Club to earn 5 or 10 or 15 cents a bag. And that was really their gateway into golf. And I think it's important to understand, again, at that time, you know, you, you sort of had the working class, the working poor. Um, in East Falls, there was a mill called Dobson's Mill where 75% of the, the residents of East Falls worked. And these kids, when they were old enough, would get a job there. And oftentimes, that's where they worked their whole life. So this, idea, to your point about caddying, this was really the way for the working class to access golf. And later, these guys became uh, the head professionals and golf professionals and caddy masters all over the Philadelphia area as Philadelphia golf grew by perhaps the, the teens and 20s. When now, instead of one or two courses, maybe there's 25 or 30, um, and all these young caddies grew up to be these great golfers and, and uh, students of the game, and it was really their way in. Caddying was their way into that, that world. The players who, who ultimately got their, their spark and their start in the game from these clubs that you mentioned, you know, talk to me a, a little about some of these people. The Silver Club podcast is really all about connecting people with the game and the history of the game. We've had some wonderful guests on our show and particularly excited about talking with you about all these people and the stories really behind the game and the historical value to the game of golf that you feel in this Philadelphia area so much. But Pete, talk to us a little bit about the players and, and the, the, the people who, whose game really got kickstarted in this area. Well, there were uh, 48 boys came out of that caddy yard and became golf professionals. And they went on to 
some of them to huge success and some of them you know, decent jobs and and a few were caddy masters and some could build golf courses some could uh, be screen superintendents they they learned it all really they learned how to make clubs in those days you did it all if you were in that business some some head pros had to take care of the golf course as well as run the golf shop and give lessons and everything else so but there were four really great graduates you might say number one jack burke was the father of jackie burke jack burke uh jackie burke for champions in houston champions, now right 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 yep. Tem- jackie burke won a masters won a pga championship mm-hmm. and so it's a great story about how they even wound up in texas because uh jack jack burke grew up there and then he wound up wound up in iowa as a pro and he was in canada as a pro in minnesota and uh actually when he was in minnesota when the minnesota opened five four times out of five years and 1920 as a pro at the town and country club in in uh, near minneapolis he finished second in the u.s open 1920 wow ted ray won that and, and harry varden should have won it but his putting nerves deserted him and he finished second and leo deagle there was a four-way tie for second but it just showed what kind of game he had and uh and later on, he won the uh, PGA Senior Championship. I think it was 1942. Uh, but anyway, before it was as big a deal as it is today. But anyway, they started going to Texas in the winters. And uh, uh, Jack, Jack Burke's wife, they were talking about, where should we live? We're starting to have children. We need to settle down. And she said, well, we could probably raise kids less expensive in texas and we can in the midwest so they decided to be in texas so he became a pro head pro in houston and uh, that's where jackie burke came along and all that yeah he had he had quite a bit of success too uh yeah a name that i i crossed uh in doing some of the research here was joe roseman yes what what was what was joe like joe roseman was uh more of an inventor than a golfer i think but anyway he he wound up in Iowa because of Jack Burke, and then he had pro jobs in Wisconsin and Chicago. But as he was doing this, actually he got into uh, designing golf courses, and he built the first lighted golf course that anybody ever knew about in the United States. And uh, he got into uh, making mowers for golf golf courses, and and uh, he was very innovative, uh, improving the green mowers, and he. He wound up with a company called the Roseman Mower Company, and uh, so he he did a lot of different things. But uh, he's a recognized as a course designer and a great innovator in golf. But uh, one thing I wanted to mention about Jack Burke was that uh, uh, Jerry Marr was uh, the brother of Jack Burke's wife. Jerry Marr went to Texas with with Jack Burke as his caddy master, and he had, and uh, he had a bro- brother named Dave Marr, and they all wound up in Texas. And Dave Marr is the father of Dave Marr, who won the PGA Championship. And there's more Mars around today. We're, we're all, it's, geez, we're all so interconnected in this game. I, I think that that's the, that's the greatest thing about this game, that we, the, the, it's the, obviously the connections that we make when we're on the golf course. And, you know, I didn't know you two before today. And, and you know, to have the opportunity to, you know, to learn about some things as we're on the course and now to sit here and talk with you. You know, it's these connections that we make are, are, are really the glue that keeps golf together. And, 
the, those yeah the, the story with david marr like that i mean everybody uh, it's uh it's pretty it's pretty amazing how we're all connected in there another person uh who's very very interesting and uh the trophy was actually named after him for a little while in the East Falls Open. And we're going to talk about the East Falls Open a little bit more here with Chris in a moment. But I'm so enamored by the these people that, that were involved in this area. Uh, John Kelly, John B. Kelly. Talk a little about John B. Kelly and his, his connections and ties. And he had a famous daughter. That's right. As Jack, well, didn't he? Jack Kelly. Do, do tell, Pete. Yep. John B., Jack Kelly, he caddied at the Philadelphia Country Club. And he had a brother named George Kelly who wrote Broadway plays. And uh, they became very successful, but not in golf, but very successful. And uh, so uh, a lot of boys came out of there that there were successes in other businesses. And, uh, but Bill Leach uh, is another boy that grew up there. And uh, later on, he was the head pro at uh, uh, Overbrook Golf Club, which was down on City Line. Mm-hmm. And Jack Kelly's sister was working in the office there, Bill Leach, and she got married. And so she was the aunt of Grace Kelly. So, and, <laughs> Grace and, Kelly, famous actress. Right. Right. The princess of Monaco, right. nonetheless, yeah. right? And and, uh, and and but John B. Kelly was a he was really a, a champion rower, right? The the on the it's it's kind of interesting if you've ever driven through uh, any of the listeners on the Silver Club podcast ever driven through the Philadelphia area on I seventy six and driven past. There's a lot of rowing clubs right off the Schuylkill River that are all in a row, and you'll often see them out there working, uh, working on the, uh, in, the, in the boats, or I probably don't have my terminology right, but, uh, you know, paddling away, getting strong, getting, uh, getting the, uh, the timing down with the, the rowing strokes. But John B. Kelly was a champion rower, and, and, uh, but how did, he get, how did he get involved with golf from rowing, in a way? Well, I think he just caddied. He wasn't, he wasn't that much into golf, but, of course, the river's right there. I mean, he was he was a figure very, I mean, a highly regarded like Babe Ruth or Jack Dempsey. I mean, he was <laughs> maybe the, the Tiger Woods of rowing, maybe, right? <laughs> yeah, what, what I was going to say is that during World War II, when World War II started, they felt like the, the boys in the United States weren't fit to go to war. And they appointed Jack Kelly ahead of a national committee to uh, shape up the, the young men in America, which just showed how what esteem he was held by but people around the country not just in philadelphia so uh, but uh, bill leach and getting back to bill leach he had some game too he finished second to uh, gene saracen in the miami open one year and went, oh that's it yeah, in 1930 <laughs> i know what that's like one shot back yeah right that's right <laughs> nobody remembers him right <laughs> and so Anyway, in 1928, he was only two strokes behind Bobby Jones in the U.S. Open and going to play in the last round, and he shot an 80, and Jones played better, but he, he did finish sixth. So he, he, had, he had some game, but uh, he, he was busy being a club pro, too. Wow, wow, very special, very special. Now, now let's bring Chris back in here for a second. Let's, let's start to dive in a little bit to, to – the East Falls Open and 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 what that's all about and kind of the the evolution of the event 
and and you know then the, and some of the 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 formats maybe that were played over time and and give us a sense of kind of how it started and and where it's evolved to today absolutely absolutely so if you can imagine um these guys in East Falls by 1915, 1918, 1919, you have a bunch of guys who are maybe in their 30s and 40s. And these are all who, the caddies, right, who, who, who former, started caddying the at the Philadelphia Cricket Club. Who are now the caddies. head professionals, yes. assistant professionals, and in the game of golf. And they like to get together, and they like to share stories. And, and, a, and a nice a, a place they like to get together was called the Gunboat, which was a block off of the Schuylkill River at the base of East Falls. And, of course, they would brag about their games, and maybe they would hear about new jobs that they could get. And um, eventually that turned into an idea. And the idea was, you know what? We all think we're good players. Let's, let's get on the golf course and, and figure out who's the best. So the idea of the East Falls Open was hatched at that point. And because they had all caddied at the Philadelphia Country Club, and because it was just a short walk across the bridge and up the hill from where they were drinking at the gunboat, they said, let's do it at the Philadelphia Country Club. And they still had connections at the Philadelphia Country Club. I think Tom Gribben, is that the name of the caddy master? Tom Gribben, who had been a caddy master for years and years, was helpful in getting the tournament and getting the club to agree to host the tournament. So in 1920, they, they, they held the first one. And uh, I believe Bill Leach won the first, is that correct? Bill Leach won the, the, the inaugural, uh, inaugural uh, Youth Falls Open. And at that time, and for the next 17 years, it was held at uh, the Philadelphia Country Club. Now, it's important to note that this is the original Philadelphia Country Club, a golf course that no longer exists, again, built in the 1890s. Um, it was in existence until about 1950. And in the 20s, the Philadelphia Country Club built their current club in Gladwin, where they have 27 holes, a beautiful facility, one of the one of the leading clubs here in the Philadelphia area. So back then, um, the course was right across the river, and they held this tournament every year. And for 17 years, they opened this tournament, which is why it was called the East Falls Open, to professionals and to amateurs in the area. And as a result, they attracted all of the best players, some of whom were from East Falls, others of whom were from the Philadelphia area. And they had some of the, the best players of that era. And it was really considered a major of the time. So for that 10 or 15 year stretch, it was considered a major among those golf professionals. And that was sort of the first stage of the East Falls Open, which took it up to about 1938. And the you mentioned um, Jack, Jack Kelly, John B. Kelly, and the emergence of the John B. Kelly Trophy, which started in 1938, which we have here right in front of us. Um, and that sort of, that was an inflection point in the history of the, of the event. And the, the format changed a bit. But prior to that, I'll just mention it was a 36-hole uh, same-day event. So one day, 36 holes, of course, gross, go out and see who the best golfer is. Um, and at the time, it was, it was covered quite a bit in the, in the uh, press. So that we, we have all the articles going back to 1920. Um, every year, um, extensive articles talking about the tournament and who won. And in some years, there were playoffs and there was drama. Uh, so it's really neat to be able to research that history and take it all the way back to 1920. Now, there was there was a, uh, a famous female amateur. Now, uh, a few months back at uh, on our uh, social media uh, site on, on Instagram and Twitter, we ran a top 50 amateurs list of all time. And there was one that uh, was ranked number 12 on our, our all-time list, a uh, lady named Glenna Colette Vare. And, and what's, what's her connection? Talk about her connection, really, to, Absolutely. to Philadelphia golf. And, I mean, she was uh, an unbelievably amazing well, if you look player. at her record, first of all, to put it into context, because now 100 years later, it's, it's easy to forget 
uh, what these folks did. She had an incredible competitive record. She won several U.S. Women's Opens and Amateurs in that era. In the late 20s and the early 30s, she was at the peak of her game, and she continued to be competitively very strong. Well, 1932, she was invited. 1932 would have been the 13th playing of the East Falls Open, again, at the Philadelphia Country Club. Uh, she was a member. Pete, is that correct? Was she a member of the Philadelphia Country Club? Uh, so that's part of the connection. But she was invited to play in the tournament. And she played that year, and it was considered at the time, there was an article that we found, the 1932 article, that uh, asserted that that was the first time that a woman played in a men's competitive event in history. Now, we can think in modern terms, we remember um, when some of the LPGA players have played, I think it started with Annika Soren. Annika and Michelle Wee and... Right, and so there you have, again, an idea that we think is sort of progressive these days, and here in 1932... <laughs> You know, the, the probably the best amateur golfer of the day, female amateur golfer of the day, was playing in the East Falls Open. How, how, did, how did she do? Do we know how she, she fared? Uh, the article, I think, said she, she shot something like in the, the low 80s at the Philadelphia Country Club. Mm -hmm. um, and again, it was a 36-hole event. I don't know how she mm -hmm, finished. Mm -hmm. I, don't she played, I don't think she played the second round. Oh, that's right. She played the morning round and for some reason did not play the afternoon round. Interesting. Well, probably all the guys thought she was gonna she was gonna end up winning and beat up on them, so they didn't. Exactly. She she graciously. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure she beat more than a few of them. <laughs> so so you now we we at the outset today we you know introduced you as the steward of the East Falls Open. Why you you you've lived in the East Falls area? You have relatives or some past i mean talk Born about your your particular lineage and i have to say that to our silver club listeners that chris is a great player from the philadelphia cricket club he's a, a low single digit handicap uh competes in the golf association of philadelphia the gap events uh for the philadelphia cricket club and and we i mean just with you and, and pete right in front of us here i mean the, the 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 talent of of golf in this area and the level of competition that you've you've played uh in this area is, is phenomenal but talk about some of your lineage in the philadelphia area and and why have you really become the steward of this now 100th playing of this east falls open absolutely uh, first i think it's important to recognize that if an event lasts for a hundred years, that's the result of several generations of people being stewards. I mean, what other event, event do you do you know? Maybe Pete, maybe you know. I mean, what other event has, outside of the U.S. Open or the U.S. Amateur, uh, what other events have lasted a hundred years? There's a, Phil there's a Philadelphia Open which started in 1903 that's still being played, and except for a couple of war years, it's been played every year. And some very famous people won that tournament like Johnny McDermott, who won two U.S. Opens. So the story of how I personally got involved was really um, stepping in about, about 10 or 15 years ago at a time when we had a group of folks who was doing a nice job carrying the event forward. And again, this is probably the fifth or sixth generation of leadership that it took. You can imagine a group of, uh, of folks every 10 or 15 years trying to carry this thing forward. And it was just our time. Um, so my personal background is I was born and raised in East Falls. My uh, my father still lives in East Falls. My sister lives in East Falls and, and raised her family there. I live not too far from East Falls. Um, so born and raised there. And golf was a big part of my upbringing. I played public golf growing up at nearby Walnut Lane uh, Golf Club. 
And over time, I've been fortunate enough to be able to play great courses uh, like the Philadelphia Country Club and compete. Um, but it was it was my time. So in the uh, I guess around 2000 or so, you know, it, it was a time when um, the tournament was 15 years or so or 20 years away from our hundredth. And I really felt like I had an obligation. Golf had given me a lot. And I'm, of course, very proud of East Falls and everything that it gave me growing up. And that was sort of a great intersection for me. And I just felt like it was a natural thing to get involved and help. And over the years, I, I did a little bit more. And we still have a terrific group of folks who keep this thing going every year. And frankly, our goal is not 100 years, right? Our goal you know, is in the next 100 years. Let's keep it going. Mm-hmm. That's really special, being the you know, not only the steward of this of this tournament that we're talking about, this East Falls Open, but just being a steward of golf, the game of golf. And and did you grow up caddying at all, or or talk about how 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 you how you got into the game and and how you got hooked on the game? I did. Well, I started playing. How I got hooked? I was uh, Pete. 14- I want to talk. The, I want to say the same question to you. Let's let's kind of absolutely talk a little bit about. Well, let me let, but, I'll let Pete start. Absolutely. Yeah, Pete, talk talk a little bit about your. You know, how did you get hooked on this this awesome game of golf? Well, I was living in a small town in Central Florida called Mount Dora, just north of Orlando. And without getting into too long a story, they built a nine-hole golf course there. And uh, it was a little bit of a tourist town with about five hotels, and people came. Not many, not many younger people lived there. A lot of older people, and people came in in the winter time, and so they built this little nine-hole course, and so. My father and brother and I went out there to see what golf was all about, and I was 10 years old, and next thing you know, somebody's asked me to caddy for him, and then the, I wound up working for the pro, cleaning clubs and caddying for him, and and I just, and golf pros from the north would come down there on winter vacations or whatever, and I wound up playing with them, and and uh, just, I don't know, I, I, I admired these pros, and uh, of course, most of them told me not to be a golf pro to do something else with my life because I could, I could do something better than being a golf pro. But, <laughs> but I got uh, hooked with the game. I guess I, you know, it's just being around it and everything, and so here I am. Well, you went to a, you went to a good school though, the University right. of Florida. Yeah. You you played you played with uh, you were yeah not only yeah you were not only did you attend there and play on the golf team you were the captain of the team in 1958 right yes, that's right um, and you ha- you had a few uh, a few good teammates yeah. at the University of Florida talk a little we, bit about some of your teammates because it's a warm climate I guess and uh, people come there to hone their games or whatever we had some a lot of great golfers there and Doug Sanders was there when I got there and uh, Dan Sykes was in law school and he wound up winning on the PGA Tour, and uh, we had Tommy Aaron was a year younger than me and won a Masters, and Frank Beard won a lot of tournaments. He was a freshman when I was a senior, and so over a span of about seven years, a, a lot of very good golfers passed through there, and uh, Dave Reagan played on our team. He was a year older than me, and he, he played on a Ryder Cup team, and people don't even remember him, but he won several tournaments. He's from Daytona Beach, won several tournaments on the PGA Tour, and played well enough to be on a Ryder Cup team. So, did you ever mm-hmm. run into Skip Alexander? I played a lot. Well, not a lot, but a, a number of times with Skip Alexander in tournaments. And of course, he was over the hill, and I was young and all that. But, <laughs> but of course, he'd been in a terrible plane accident. And uh, but uh, he used to run a lot of tournaments at his course at Lakewood Country Club in St. Petersburg, and have us pros there to play with his members. And the, uh, the, yeah. the connection, yeah, Skip. Uh, and you know, I have to mention for those who don't know, Skip. Alexander play. He was a Ryder Cup star. Uh, beat one of their best players very soon after 
he was in a in a very bad plane accident where he was the only survivor of of the plane crash and he was burned over i want to say 80 percent of his body or something and it was uh you know a, a small miracle that he made it and then was able to to play but the university of florida tie with that is his son buddy alexander 1986 u.s amateur champion and he was my coach at the university of florida as well so uh again that whole full circle of the game of golf it all we're all connected in some way right it's uh it's pretty neat now 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 chris just to kind of put a bow on 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 this podcast and this and, and this east falls open and the hundredth playing of this you mentioned yes, you'd like to see this go on for another hundred years or more. How how do you see it doing that? And and who is there anyone kind of in the wings, kind of mentoring off of you or watching you? And and do you feel like 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 the next generation has the same sort of feeling towards the game of golf in this area? Uh, that's interesting. I mean, we. I can't say that we have the next generation coming up. We, we certainly talk about it as a leadership group. You know, golf has changed. You know, I remember growing up, I had several friends. We would play golf as much as we possibly could. You know, there, I, I do feel like we need to find that next generation to really keep it going. Uh, but in terms of the event itself and how we can, how we can keep going, I, I think it's important to say that it has evolved over time. We talked about it, what it was like in the 20s and 30s. And shortly after that, the, the format changed. It sort of refocused on East Falls as a neighborhood and a location. The format changed. It focused more on amateur golf. We introduced a flighted, well, not we, but this is back in the 40s, the leadership at the time, introduced a flighted format uh, where players would play an A, B, C, D flight, et cetera, based on their playing ability. And that's a format that we continue to use today. We've added a playoff over the years to make it more interesting and dramatic. Ooh, tell uh, what, what, yeah, talk about the playoff. Like, well, yeah, it's, that's, I always love playoffs. The playoffs really make it a special event. So in um, uh, 1980, we introduced an 18-hole playoff, and the top finishers in A, B, C, D flight would come back and play that course about a week later, and whoever had the lowest score in each of those flights would be the winner of those flights. It was all about bragging rights. We had certainly trophies, et cetera. So it's an event that really is the highlight of the year for people that, that play in it. So that was 1980. We introduced that 18-hole playoff. In the mid-'90s, we uh, converted that to a six-hole same-day playoff. And the reason we wanted to do that was to really tap into the excitement of the day. So the event, the format today is everyone comes out, we play a morning round. It's now five flights, A through E, plus a senior flight and a guest flight. And we have several guests who play with us. What sort of handicaps really kind of lie in there? Yep. A, so an A flight, with the scores are typically in the mid to mid to high 70s, low 80s. Mm-hmm. B flight, mid to mid, uh, low to mid 80s. Mm-hmm. C, high 80s, low 90s. D flight low let's say 90s into the low hundreds and e-flight you know get guys shooting 100 105 110 115 Mm. but they have an equal chance of making the playoff and that's what makes Uh. it such a special day Uh. we talk about amateur golf you know there's a very small percentage of amateur golfers who are top players most Mm. amateur golfers you know are all over the map in terms of playing ability and handicap so we really celebrate that and we recognize that it gives a chance it gives everyone a chance to compete and make the playoff. And if you make the playoff, mm-hmm. you play in a six-hole playoff after lunch that day, and everybody that didn't make the playoff walks around and watches their friends compete. Huh. And if you win your flight, you move up to the next flight. You earn your way up, 
hmm. which means you're giving you're giving opportunities for other people next year and in upcoming years to make the playoff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what that ends up meaning is everybody that competes, and we have people come back year after year after year, and again, it's the highlight of their calendar. They circle it on their calendar every year. What that means is everybody at one point or another has competed in this playoff and they know what it feels like to be a little nervous in front of their friends and try to put it in the hole you know even a three-footer you got to make you know hole out and and try to win those bragging rights for next year it's really a generational thing is what you're saying i mean i mean yeah i I think about you, you think about golf and how it spans the generations and you know we're 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 seeing this today in, in speaking with you and Pete and Pete's 82 years young and and just a a, a, a a golf history savant, if you will, in this area and golf in general. And and, you know, you, you bringing up now this this new uh, new crop of golfers. And now there will be somebody behind you at some point leading this event uh into the next millennium hopefully it's absolutely a generational thing we can look at names on this 1938 john b kelly trophy and recognize last names which are still in existence today in terms of players who are competing in this event Um, an example would be the the donahue family so jigs donahue and and certainly uh pete can talk more about him was a was a top player in the 20s 30s 40s his son, uh, who caddied on the senior PGA Tour, you know, loved the game of golf, has competed in our event for many years. Um, and now, you know, he continues to come out every year. And there are many others. That's one example. Um, East Falls is has historically largely an Irish community, so there's a lot of Murphys um, <laughs> and a lot of Irish surnames that you see all over the history of this event. Right, right, right. Pete, do you have anything to add to that? I want to talk about one more uh, graduate from the falls and that was bill Byrne. bill Byrne was a brother of ed Byrne, i guess it was that owned the the, the restaurant the, the gunboat right right and he was a little he, he was born in england the irish parents and came over here and so he was a little older than the others but anyway he wound up being an assistant pro at the philadelphia country club and how to make clubs and he was pro at three or four courses in philadelphia and uh and he was a founder of the PGA of America. In 1916, when the PGA of America was founded, he was a, they called him vice president. And each, it's only seven sections when the PGA was founded for the whole United States. Huge sections. And, and of course, that evolved into 41 <laughs> sections now. Yes. But anyway, based on how many members you had in each section, you had a certain number of of people on the board, and they called him vice presidents. And he was one of the first vice presidents in 1916 for the Philadelphia. It wasn't the Philadelphia section, and we were in the southeastern section, which was the eastern part of the United States, from everything from Pennsylvania, south of New Jersey, all the way down to the Florida line. That was the southeastern section. Atlanta was in our section. Anyway, but Bill Byrne then... The Philadelphia PGA, when they finally started to say, well, we need to have more PGA sections. These things are too big. And how do you get to a meeting? How do you get to the section championship or whatever? So they broke it up and started to have more sections like they broke into 21 sections. The Philadelphia section was created. And it's the only section the PGA in the United States is named for a city. Every other PGA section is named for a region or a state. Like there's the Aloha section, the Met section in North Florida, whatever. The only one named after a city. There's a there's a great nugget that, for you. So, yeah, nobody realizes that, but there it is. You know. <laughs> so anyway, 
he was on the committee that founded the Philadelphia PGA, and he was like the uh, they called him like the interim president. He, he and he ran the meetings and all the organizing meetings and all that. But when they elected officers, he told them that he didn't want to be an officer, but he'd do anything he could to help the section be a success. So anyway, but uh, when Johnny McDermott won the uh, U.S. Open 1911, he gave Bill Byrne full credit for helping him with his game. And uh, so anyway, he was pro at St. Davis from my club from 1914 to 1927. But if... If it weren't for me, nobody would ever even know that he was pro at my club. It's just the way it seems to evolve. Wow. Well, so the event this year, let's just talk about the event this year that's coming up in a few months. Who can play? The the, the dates, uh, it's September 9th. It's always the, the Monday after Labor Day. How excited are you for this, the centennial of the East Falls Open? We're very excited for the centennial. It'll, it's going to take place, as you mentioned, on September 9th at Sandy Run Country Club, which is just about a mile from where we're sitting right now. Um, we're very excited, and our players get very excited about it every year, whether it's the 100th or the, the 90th or the 110th. These guys look forward to it every year, and we're excited about continuing that tradition. Um, this year, we're trying to do several special things. It's great to be able to come on to your podcast. This is terrific. Um, how can people play? Uh, so the folks that are eligible are anybody who lives in East Falls or lived in East Falls or is the descendant of anybody who lives or lived in East Falls. And if you don't meet that criteria, you can also play in our guest flight. And we have, we have several folks that like to play and come play with their, their friends in our guest flight. And they also compete and have a chance to win. Um, so we really try to give everybody a chance to compete and feel uh, what it's like to compete regardless of what your handicap is. And when I think and reflect on the, the, the nature of your podcast and your organization, which really celebrates amateur golf in particular, I think it really that really resonates, that we have a tournament that truly celebrates amateur golf in, in every respect, at every level of playing ability. That's that's a really interesting and and yeah, that certainly puts a bow on the whole thing. It, it, it just it makes everybody feel connected to the game, which is which is how it started here back, you know, the, in 1893 when that Philadelphia Country Club was was built and Devon Club was built. Um, it, 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 getting everybody involved in the game, being very inclusive, as opposed to a lot of people think golf is very exclusive, but this is this is a very inclusionary sort of uh, event. Absolutely, and the, our our field really reflects that as well. Um, the, the, I think the history and the heritage of East Falls and the, the sort of sons of East Falls have uh, evolved over the years into all different walks of life. Um, and I think our event really represents that beautifully. And again, it's a great five generations is a great uh, a great example of, of the, the sort of the the, uh, the patchwork, uh, so to speak, um, of amateur golf and what that can mean in terms of bringing people together around the game of golf and then to really enjoy that energy and again we feel that every year when the guys are coming out they're excited to play they're excited to stick around whether they make that playoff or not that excitement about being there with their friends at a special event an event that's been around for now a hundred years and you know god willing another hundred years uh, really makes it special and a real celebration of amateur golf before we wrap things up here, with you, Pete, being such a historian of the game, where can we find more info about the years of knowledge that you have inside your head? I have a website. It's called TrenumGolfHistory.org. On that website is a history of the Philadelphia Section PGA, and along with that is 
things that other professional golf has been in Philadelphia, like five U.S. Opens at Marion, and I've got the program books from those tournaments on there, and uh, lost courses in Philadelphia, and and there's a thing called Trenum's Treasure Trove, which is uh, a number of articles about uh, it has to do with professional golf in Philadelphia and uh, the various events that have been held and things that have happened. Trenum's Treasure Trove. Well, we'll have to check that one out today. I, I couldn't be couldn't be happier to be joined to be joined by you two on on our podcast and. You know, at, at the Silver Club Golfing Society, really, it what we do, it's the, the formula is very simple of what we do. It's all about history. It's all about camaraderie. It's all about tradition. And the East Falls Open and Pete Trenum and Chris Kallmeyer, you two really embody what what that is. You you are true silver clubbers in that respect. And kudos to you and thank you for on behalf of all the, the golfers out there of any skill level. Thank you for carrying this tradition onward and uh, really special to, to see. Do you allow PGA professionals to play, you know, like myself Absolutely. or Pete? You, can we come in and tee it up maybe? 100%. You are more than welcome. <laughs> it's been great to be here, Steve. Can't thank you enough for the opportunity to sit with you and talk, talk about the history of our event and how it fits into the history of golf in Philadelphia and what it means to us. Thank, thank you, Chris, and thank you, Pete, for being on the Silver Club podcast today. 